0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So I want to begin this morning with a question. What is the single most difficult thing that anyone has ever asked of you? Right, that thing that you weren't sure if you could do it or if you were honest that you even wanted to do? I think we've all faced difficult decisions in life, we've all found ourselves in difficult situations, but uh, many of them are the result of choices that we've made rather than a request that someone else has made of us. And so this week I asked a few of you this question, and I got a lot of crickets to be honest, Um, but as we talked about it and unpacked the question a bit, the answers fit into one of two buckets, one was caring for someone was one of the most difficult things. The more intimate in-depth uh, long-term care maybe uh, welcoming somebody into your home. One was caring for someone, the other was confronting someone. Confronting someone of the of the truth. And you know what both of those things have in common? They deal with loving others, don't they? Not just feeling love for others, but expressing love and choosing to love. You know, I think love might be one of the most misunderstood things in all of Scripture. Both who we are called to love and how we are called to love. Because underneath it all, I think what it is is that we misunderstand why it is that God has called us to love. And so as he's done throughout this section on the Sermon on the Mount here at the end of chapter 5, Jesus, he's going to confront one last common misunderstanding that I think many of us have about what God has said as we learn to live out the way of Jesus by listening to the words of Jesus. And so this morning, we are going to hear Jesus correcting our misunderstanding of love. Right? Correcting our misunderstanding of love. That's the title of our sermon this morning. And the love that Jesus is calling us, his followers, to show, I think what we're going to see here is the hardest, it is the most difficult thing anyone has ever asked of us. And so what we're going to see, our big idea is this. If you're taking notes, why don't you write this down? It's the way of Jesus loves others the way God loves us, all right? The way of Jesus loves others. And if you want to put the word all in front of others, that'd be okay loves others the way God loves us. We're going to see that love is the ultimate expression of faithfulness to the words and the way of Jesus, that it will help us befriend faithfulness. So Jesus, again, this week, he's going to do two things. He is going to confront our misunderstanding of love, and then he is going to set out to correct our misunderstanding. And so the first thing we're going to see here in verse 43 is Jesus is going to confront our misunderstanding of love And so Jesus, He says here in verse 43, He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Don't know if we really like what Jesus has to say this morning. I think that's the sixth week in a row we've not really liked what Jesus had to say. And when we don't like what God has to say, it's easy to take what He said and blatantly twist what He said so that it sounds more like we hoped it would say, isn't it? And that's what we've done with love. That's what the people that Jesus was speaking to had done with love. They had narrowed the scope of love by limiting what it is that God had said about love. And they did two things. Number one, they limited how God had called them to love. They limited how God called them to love, saying, you shall love your neighbor. And now to be clear, like God did say that. He said those exact words in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice what was missing in their version of what God had said? They had left off as yourself. They had limited how God had called them to love by negating the way in which they had called to love. And what they had done is they had created levels of love, so to speak. And so what they were doing is they'd be to someone like, I love you. I love you like a 10, and I'm pointing to my wife right now, not the people behind my wife, right? Right? I love you, AJ, but I love you. I love you 3,000. The rest of y'all, I love you like a four, maybe a five. Three on a bad day. Six of you got me a gift. I don't know. But if I love myself 3,000, I better be loving them 3,000. They limited how God called them to love, but they also limited who God had called them to love. By narrowing the definition of neighbor. See, they, they felt they only needed to love their own, their own Jewish people. And by doing that, they had taken something that was blatant and made something blatantly exclusive that God had tended to be broadly inclusive, right? God intended our love for others to be like an all-inclusive resort in the Riviera Maya, right? Everything's included, loving everybody. But they limited neighbor to those that were like them. Only loving those that looked and spoke like them. Those that sounded and thought like them. Those who believed and behaved like them. Only loving their own race and their own religion. And what they had done is they would effectively added a a footnote, an asterisk in their Bibles next to Deuteronomy 19.18 saying, if you're only called to love your neighbor, then you don't need to love those who aren't your neighbor well, then it only makes sense that I should hate my enemy. I don't need to love them. The monastic Qumran community, they wrote in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they, they believed they were called to love all the sons of light, those that were in their community, and to hate all the sons of darkness, the, the outsiders, and to hate them each according to his guilt and the vengeance due him. That was the logic that they were using to apply their own twisted interpretation of what God had said. The problem is, God never said that. Not, not even anything close to that. In fact, He said the exact opposite multiple times. God, He called Israel to love the stranger, to love the sojourner, right? The, the immigrant, the, the outsider. He says in Leviticus 19, He says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? For you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They weren't to rejoice when their enemy falls, when their enemy stumbles, as it says in Proverbs 24, but to care for their enemy. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, then give him bread to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give them water to drink. Even if, probably if, they would likely never do that for you in return. But rather than helping their enemy, they hated their enemy. And here's why. See, when your loyalty to your own group grows so strong, it is easy to loathe the others and treat them as outsiders, isn't it? And don't we do the same thing? Rather than acting a bit more like Mr. Rogers and asking everybody to be our neighbor, we're a bit more like the Pharisees in limiting our definition of neighbor. And we limit our definition of neighbor based on uh, people's political party and who they voted for, we limit based on their denomination and the way in which they worship. We limit based on their culture, their citizenship, the way they live, who they love. Like the list goes on and on in the ways in which we can limit our love. Do we treat those who disagree as our enemy. We say to people, sorry, you're, you're just too different from me, right? You don't check enough boxes for me. There's not enough similarities for you to be my neighbor. And then what we do is we draw this big circle, don't we? We draw a circle around those that are like us. And we treat everyone who is in the circle as our neighbor. And we treat everyone outside the circle as we draw on as an outsider, as our enemy. And what we do, we make assumptions about them. We hurl accusations at them. We think that anyone who holds different beliefs is our enemy. Anyone who worships differently is our enemy. Anyone who views things differently is our enemy. Anyone who votes differently, they're all our enemy. And rather than discussing our differences and debating our disagreements, we destroy each other's dignity. Rather than seeking to understand their story, we shame them and we shun them. And we don't even treat them as though they were a human being created in the image of God anymore. We draw a circle and then we draw layers of circles within the circle. And those we like most, those that check more boxes, uh, they're not just our neighbor, they're our next door neighbor. And so I want to ask you this morning, who is your enemy? Who's your enemy? Who is outside that circle that you've drawn? And I'm not talking about just generic groups of people. I'm talking about specific people. Who have you excluded? Who have you not only failed to love, but chosen to hate? And why is that? I'll be honest, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit in this moment would be laying a name and a face on your heart that you've pushed outside. See, what we need to remember here, just as we've seen throughout this sermon, is Jesus isn't speaking to others. He's speaking to us, isn't he? He's speaking to his followers. He's not confronting the hatred that our enemies have towards us. No, he's confronting our own hatred of those that we've deemed our enemy rather than love as our neighbor. So Jesus, he first confronts our misunderstanding. Then what we see is Jesus, in the rest of the passage, he's going to correct our misunderstanding of love. He's going to show us who we are called to love, how we are called to love, and why we are called to love. Let's read the rest of this here. Let's read verses 44 to 48. It's a big section. The glasses are going on. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sons rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There it is. Jesus made what I think might be the most difficult request anyone has ever made of us. But it's important to remember that when, when Jesus speaks, right, he, he speaks with the authority of God because He Himself is God, isn't He? Jesus, what, he, what He's done is He has taken the entire Mosaic Law that God handed down to Moses atop Mount Sinai, and He has summarized it with one word. And you know what that word is? Go ahead and say it. Love. And he summarized the entire Mosaic Law in one command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. One command, not two separate commands, one single command, and probably, possibly, the most difficult command ever asked of us. And if we're honest, we don't like what Jesus has called us to, do we? In fact, I think we flat out disagree with it at times in certain situations. There's no shortage of enemies in our lives that we would rather hate than love. And not just groups of people, but specific people. Those that have lied to you and let you down. Those who have wronged you, who have hurt you, who have humiliated you. Maybe a spouse who's cheated on you or or left you. So you're saying rather than retaliating against them, you said I can't do that last week. Now you're saying not only that, but I got to love them? Like what if what if they abused me? What if they molested me as a child? What if they raped me? You're saying Jesus is calling me to love my rapist, to love my abuser? I'm just supposed to get over it, I guess, right? Is that what you're saying? Just supposed to get over it. I'm just supposed to pretend like nothing ever happened and just invite them back into my life to be my neighbor again? I thought Jesus loved me thought the Bible told us so. Why why would Jesus ever ask me to do that? How could I ever do that? I can't. I won't. Rather than rejecting the words of Jesus, rather than refusing to follow the way of Jesus, what I want us to do is to prayerfully seek to understand the words in the way of Jesus. And so as we've done these past few weeks, As we seek to understand, I want us to look at what we know to be clear and certain in Scripture regarding love. And I can think of nothing better to start with than what John says in 1 John 4.8, which is that God is love. We know that to be clear. We know that to be certain because it says it in God's Word. God is love. And the Apostle John, he's not saying here that love is what God does. No, it is who God is. Love's not just an emotion God feels. It is part of His very nature, His very character. See, God has eternally existed as three persons, right? One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Living in perfect unity. Perfect community. Perfect love. And so when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, that is simply an expression and an outpouring of who God is. He created out of love. As creator, God pours out his love on his creation because God is love. The second thing that I think we see that is clear and certain in Scripture is this. It's that we are created in the image of a loving God. We're created in the image of a loving God. Genesis 1.26 says that God, He says, let us make humanity in our own image after our likeness. Verse 27, He says, so God created humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so that means we share in what we refer to as the communicable attributes of God. Albeit imperfectly, because the image has been marred by sin. But we share in his attributes, such as his grace, mercy, uh, justice, and love. We are created in the image of a loving God. The third thing that we see, though, also is that, that's clear and certain is that love is not contrary to the truth, is it? Right? Love is not contrary to truth. In fact, they're linked. Right? In Ephesians 4.15, Paul calls us to speak the truth in love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's treatise on love, he says in verse 6, love rejoices with truth. And so to love your enemy is not to deny the truth of what they have done to you, of the hurt that they have inflicted on you, and to pretend it did not happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. Love is not contrary to truth. And the fourth thing that we see that's clear and certain is that love is not contrary to justice either. Love's not contrary to justice. In fact, they go hand in hand. The the prophet Hosea, he said to Israel in Hosea 12.6, hold fast to both love and justice. They go together. They're not mutually exclusive. The prophet Micah in Micah 6.8, he says, God requires his people to do justice and to love kindness. And so what we see throughout Scripture is that justice is an act of love, isn't it? But number five, we also see that love is not tolerant of injustice either. Love is not tolerant of injustice. It's not tolerating the injustice that exists in the world. It's not accepting the sinful behavior of those in our lives. That's even true of God's love towards us, isn't it? Hebrews 12.6 says that for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And so that means when a sin has been committed, when a crime has been committed, loving your enemy does not mean that we should let them off the hook, that they should be free of the consequences of their crime, of their sin, that there are no consequences for their sin. No, it doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean that you must then return to an abusive relationship, returning to an abusive environment. Love is not tolerant of injustice. And that brings us to the sixth thing that we see in Scripture that is clear and certain about love, and that is that the way of Jesus is a way of love, isn't it? Paul, he he describes this way in 1 Corinthians 13. In this beautiful passage where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of the angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I gave away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And I love this description he gives. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And he ends chapter 13 saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. You notice that Paul doesn't use adjectives there. He's not describing how love feels. No, he's he's using verbs. He's describing what love does because here we, we need to know this. Love is not an emotion you feel. Love is a choice that you make and an action that you take. Love is not an emotion you feel. It is a choice that you make and an action that you take. Jesus is not simply asking us to feel love for others, to feel the the tingles, as Dr. Chapman calls them in the love languages. He's not not calling us for that. He's calling us to express our love to others. Because what we need to see is love is not about you. Love is about others. And with that in mind, I want us to listen to the words of Jesus again here in verse 44 and hear the heart of Jesus behind the words. He says, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right, Jesus, he's, he's giving us the who and the how right here. He's, he's showing us who we are called to love, right? We are called to love both our neighbor as ourselves, and he's calling us to love our enemy because even our enemy is our neighbor. Does that make sense? A plus B equals C type of thing. There's a property in math that we learned in fourth grade this year with the boys, but I don't remember what it is. But who's your enemy then? It's not those you hate. It's those who hate you. It's those who persecute you, Jesus says. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he clarifies this in his book Discipleship, saying that in the New Testament, our enemies are those who harbor hostility against us, not those in whom we cherish hostility. What? What Jesus is saying is that our love for others, it's not in response to the way in which they have treated us. No, it is in response to the way in which our Heavenly Father has loved us. And a reflection of that love to others, a reflection of that love to the world, including our enemies. But he doesn't just show us who we're called to love, he shows us how we're called to love, specifically how we're called to love our enemy. And he gives us a away here one of the one of the most loving things you can do for someone is to pray for them and and here's why Bonhoeffer continues saying that through the medium of prayer we go to our enemy we stand by his side and we plead him to God Not pleading like we saw a couple weeks ago as we talked about divorce. Not pleading just for an acknowledgement of the pain they caused. Not pleading and praying for an apology for the hurt that they inflicted because if that is, is all that happens, they will typically return back to the same cycle of sin and violence over and over again. No, what we are praying for is the Holy Spirit to stir in their hearts and for the Spirit to lead them in feeling remorse over their sin. To repent of their sin. Because only then can there be true reconciliation. Only then can reconciliation begin. Only then can there be any hope for restoration of the relationship and not just with you, but with God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that to love your enemy is to pray for their eternal salvation and to hate your enemy is to desire their eternal damnation. That changes our view of hate, doesn't it? There should not be anyone that we desire eternal damnation for, not one. The most vile human being that has ever walked the face of the planet. Jesus is still calling us to pray for them to repent and for them to return. And so what if we simply prayed for our enemies? What if if we just started there with this one little step Jesus gives us and pray for enemies? What What if you prayed for that politician you despise? What if you prayed for that abortion doctor you abhor? But not just someone out there. What about someone who's closer to you? What if we prayed for that friend or that family member you just can't stand to be around anymore? What if we prayed for that person who hurt you? I think it gives a new twist to our phrase, don't just say you'll pray, stop and pray, doesn't it? Don't wait until you begin to feel love for that person to pray because that'll never happen. Now, that's backwards. Instead, I think what we need to see is that praying for your enemy plants the seed of love in your heart that enables you to love them the way Jesus loves them. The way of Jesus is a way of love. And the rest of this passage, it shows us five results of loving like Jesus. What this begins to do as we begin to live out his words and follow his way. And number one is this. Loving like Jesus leads to greater intimacy with God. I think it's safe to say that is something that each and every one of us in this room and at home desire deeply. And we're longing for and we're struggling to find, especially over this last year. But loving like Jesus, it leads to greater intimacy. He says in verse 45, he says... But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now again, let's not get this backwards. Jesus, He's not saying that loving your enemies earns God's love. That's backwards. He's not calling us to love so that we become sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. But because we are already chosen and adopted by our Heavenly Father, that we are His children, right? The gospel is that your sin made you an enemy of God and His love made you a child of God. Amen? Let's not miss that. Let's not get that backwards here. Your sin made you an enemy of God, but His love, His choosing, His adoption made you His child. And here's the kicker God doesn't love you because you're lovely. We're not all that lovely. I love you, and we're not that lovely. No, God loves us because He is love, because of who He is, in spite of who we are. And the thing is, is that when we recognize that, when we recognize the depth of our sin, I think we come to realize the depth of our Father's love even more. We come to see how it is undeserved, it is unearned. And it leads us to respond to God's love and to reflect that love to more and more, reflecting it to others, reflecting it to the world, reflecting it to our enemies. And as we do, as we receive and we respond and we reflect God's love, we begin to experience the fullness of His love for us and a greater intimacy with God that I think we all desire. But what I do need you to know here is that harboring bitterness towards others it will create a barrier to greater intimacy with God. And so if that intimacy is what you desire and you are struggling to find it, I pray that the Spirit would reveal to you where there may be bitterness towards others, towards those that you have made your enemy, that you can begin to pray for and begin to love like Jesus. Because loving like Jesus leads to greater intimacy with God. And number two, loving like Jesus imitates the love of God. Right? It imitates the love of God. He says in verse 45, he says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's not sent any rain on the state of Illinois for the past how long? One day, though, but it's even. Now, in theory here, the idea is that like um, as parents, we want to model the behavior that we want our children to imitate, don't we? That's the plan, at least, when we set out. The problem is, you come to know very quickly, the kids, they're always watching, aren't they? They They're always listening. They see and hear everything, and it seems like they only imitate those things you wish they hadn't seen and hadn't heard, don't you? And they imitate them in the most public of spaces, don't they? And when it happens, mom looks at the child, and she's like, where did you learn that? And without fail, the child points. I learned it from Dad. Thankfully, our Heavenly Father doesn't have the same bad habits that we have as parents, does He? God loves the world that He made. And He pours out His grace, what we call His common grace on everyone, both His children and His enemies. And just as God called Israel to be holy, for I am holy, to imitate Him, to be like Him, Jesus is calling us the children of God, created in the image of a loving God, to imitate that love of God by reflecting His love and loving not just those we like, not just those we love, not just those who love us, but the entire world, including our enemies, as a reflection of His character in whom we are created in the image of as His children. Loving like Jesus imitates the love of God. And here's number three. It doesn't get any easier. Number three, loving like Jesus loves those who do not love us. All right, loving like Jesus loves those who do not love us. Look at verse 46. It says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I think it's easy to love someone who's lovely, isn't it? it's easy to love someone you like it's easy to love someone who loves you right? it's easy for me to love my wife jill it's easy for anybody to love jill it's just simply a natural response to who she is because she's lovely it's instinctual unlike me yet she loves me anyway thank you i loving jill so so natural even tax collectors love jill as long as she pays her taxes on time he says, even tax collectors love those who love them. Thing is, not many people love the tax collectors. Tax collectors were kind of the scum of first century Palestine. They, because they were collecting uh, oppressive taxes on their own people for the Roman government. They were viewed as, as traitors, so to speak, as thieves. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't be like them. Be like me. Don't just love what you desire, but also love what you despise. And I think that's what makes the way of Jesus, that's what makes loving like Jesus so radically different from the way that the world loves. Because as followers of Jesus, we are called to love those who do not love us. We are called to love those who do not like us. We're even called to love those who hate us. Because loving like Jesus loves those who do not love us. Number four, loving like Jesus welcomes those who are not like us. All right, loving Jesus welcomes those who are not like us. Look at verse 47. He says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles, the pagans, don't even they do the same? And yet, I think we've probably all experienced this in, in, the, in uh, trying to find a new church home if you've recently moved, for example. Too often, the church becomes a clique, doesn't it? And they draw in this impenetrable circle around their own people that new people, that different people are never able to break through. And Jesus like, that's how the pagan people acted. They loved their own. They welcomed their own. But Jesus, he's saying, don't be like them. Be like me. Don't just welcome those that you know. Don't only ever say hi to the people that you like. Don't, don't just hang out with the people who are like you. No, he's calling us to welcome each and every person that walks through our doors. Because, see, here's what happens when the church shuts its door on someone, that says something. It's saying, not only do we not want you, but it's saying, Jesus doesn't want you. And if you're wondering why so many are leaving the church lately, you know why? It's because of the church. I think oftentimes we are our own worst enemy. We have a not wanted sign on our door far too often. And I'm not just talking about us, I'm talking big C church here. The church should be the most welcoming, inviting, and hospitable group of people that have ever existed in the history of the world, amen? We shouldn't need to fly a flag. We shouldn't need to post a sign saying that anyone is welcome, should we? Because that is just who we are. That is our identity. That is, we are created in the image of a loving God who loves and who has welcomed. And why do we do this? Why do we welcome anyone who walks through our door? Because we want them to hear about Jesus, don't we? We want them to know Jesus and we want to help them grow to be like Jesus as we come to know Jesus more and grow to be more like Jesus. And so here's kind of a practical working out of this for us this morning. If you are here and you call redemption home, if if this is the church home that you worship with, these are the people that you worship with, then you are not our guest. You are a host. This is your home. This is your family. Little crazy, messed up family with a whole bunch of crazy uncles. But that's who we are. You're not a guest, you're a host. And that means that you share in the responsibility with us in making redemption a place to belong for anyone who walks through those doors. It's not the responsibility of the people wearing the welcome team lanyards. It's the responsibility of everybody who calls this place home. It's not just the responsibility of Kay standing out at the info desk. It's the responsibility of each and every one of us who week in and week out worship together and live in community and serve with one another here. Everyone serves on the welcome team every week. That's the big idea. You, 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 you. If I just met you this morning, you get one more week. When you come back next week, you're on the welcome team. We're all on the welcome team every week. And so here's the deal. You know that phrase that we've said, new to you? Say it with me, new to you. You know who's new to you? If you don't know their name, if you don't remember their name, if you have forgotten their name, they are new to you. I don't care if you've asked their name 99 times. Go ask a hundredth. Do you know what I did this morning? I went up to somebody that I hadn't seen before. I was like, oh, hey, you're so-and-so's friend. I was waiting for another family to come, and they're like, no, but I sure would like to meet so-and-so. I made a blithering, f- I made a fool of myself. It, I, they were new. I wanted to say hi. If they're new to you. Go say hi. Get here a little bit early. You know, you, you can get here at like 9.30. We're serving coffee again. Amen. And uh, you can come in, and here's what I want you to do. Every week, I want you finding somebody new to you. Every week, I want you to find someone new to you whose name you don't remember, whose name you have forgotten. Ask them again and say, I'm sorry, but Pastor Ash said I can ask you one more time, what's your name again? And then, I don't know, do the Pastor Dale trick. You notice how many Pastor Dale tricks I throw out? He writes people's names down. He's good at that. Actually, it's because he's not good at remembering the name. That's why he writes them down. Every week, you're on the welcome team. Every week, you're meeting someone new to you because loving like Jesus welcomes those who are not like us. We good with that one? Yeah. Number five, loving like Jesus conforms us into the image of Christ. Loving like Jesus conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. He closes in verse 48 saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this verse, it's not just a conclusion to this passage. It's a conclusion to this entire section here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's he's going back to this greater righteousness that He called us to back in verse 20 before we began these six misunderstandings that He's correcting. And that word perfect, I think that's a little scary, isn't it? But that Greek word for perfect, it it, it means uh, completion. It means mature. It means fully developed And the idea here in what Jesus is saying is that the more that we listen to the words of Jesus, the more we live out the way of Jesus, the more we love like Jesus, the more we grow to be like Jesus, the more we grow to be conformed into the image of Christ, the more we live out our God-created identity, as Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase in the message. But I need you to know, Jesus knows this side of heaven, this side of glory, we are going to stumble, we are going to fall, we are going to sin, aren't we? Maybe even before we hit the parking lot. Maybe even before the amen. We're going to make mistakes. We are going to hurt others. We are going to let others down. But growing to be more like Jesus means acknowledging the pain that we have caused and the hurt that we have inflicted on others. It means repenting of the sin that we have committed and returning to Jesus who died to forgive that sin. And then loving like Jesus means forgiving others of their sin against you. Forgiving even your enemy as God has forgiven you. This is the way. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of love, a way that loves others, a way that loves all others, even your enemy, the way God loves you, the way he loves us. But what I love is that God didn't simply declare his love for you. He didn't just send you a Hallmark card saying, I love you. No, he demonstrated his love for you on the cross, didn't he? He displayed His love for you and that while we were still sinners, while we were still His enemies, Christ came and Christ died for us. He died for you. He died for me. He died for the kids downstairs. He died for those of you at home. And when we come to the cross, we see the ultimate display of love for the enemy as Jesus does the very words that He spoke here. As He prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus wasn't just praying for the soldiers that nailed him. He wasn't just praying for the authorities who accused him. He was praying for you and he was praying for me in that moment. We are the ones that nailed him to the cross. He died to forgive our sin. And it is that love of God that has transformed us from his enemies into his children, into a friend of God. It is a love that knows no bounds. It is a love that forgives all wrong. It is a love that brings us peace. And it is that love that we remember and that we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table and we partake in the Lord's Supper together. We receive God's love with with all of our senses in communion. We get to see and smell. We get to taste and touch God's love. And that's what we're going to do. We are going to transition into a time of remembrance and celebration. And so in a moment, I'm going to give you a time to pray silently. And my specific ask is that you would pray for someone you have deemed an enemy. Someone that the Holy Spirit has been laying on your heart. Not not a generic group of people, but a specific person, a specific name, a specific face. I want you to spend the next minute praying for them. And then I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to lead us in taking communion together. I just want to invite you this time to go ahead and bow your heads, and let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.